Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. My guest today is the king of Bay Street, Mr. Wesley Hall. Wes came from very humble beginnings in rural Jamaica to become one of the most influential business people in Canada. As the founder and chairman of Kingsdale Advisors, he's orchestrated multi-billion dollar corporate deals that have led to McLean's Magazine ranking him at number 16 on their power list of the most influential Canadians. Wes also gives back to the community through a multitude of organizations, most notably founding the Black North Initiative aimed at removing anti-Black systemic barriers in business and our communities. But Wes is perhaps best known as one of the dragons on CBC's Dragon's Den, the reality series where entrepreneurs pitch their business ventures in hopes of earning both investment dollars and marketing connections. Welcome, Wes, to Toronto Legends. I'd like to offer you a hearty wagwan, and thank you for joining me. Where are you, and how are you? Andrew, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast today. I am in the beautiful city of Toronto, where the temperature is like perfect 28 degrees or 27 degrees. You know, not very sunny, but, you know, not very hot as well. It's just the perfect weather. I just came back from uh, from France, actually. Oh. It was like 41 degrees every day. Oh, boy. <laughs> 41 degrees. I went out for 10 minutes, and I'm going, I got to go back inside. <laughs> so this is a, a welcome resp- respite from the hot this European temperatures. Yeah, this is great. So I'm here talking to you from my Bay Street office and uh, in the Exchange Tower downtown Toronto. Well, very interesting. Have you been back in the office? Are you back five days a week? Or what's the vibe downtown in terms of people returning to the office? Well, I've always been back. and uh, But the vibe is really, it's a little different over the last little while. You know, the building that I'm in is about, what, 54 stories or something like that. And uh, it's only about 20% occupied. But the interesting thing, this morning, when I went to get my coffee, my tea at Starbucks, the lineup was packed. There was all kinds of people there. It was just, I had to wait. I mobile ordered it, which is when you when you do that, you get it like within two minutes of you showing up. Yeah. I had to wait 15 minutes to get it. Oh, boy. That's how it was. So this guy came and he was striking up a conversation and he said, I said, man, this is great. It's like, is it always like this? Because I haven't been down here. I just came back from vacation. And he's like, no, I was here yesterday, and there was only like three people in line. And so, the, so the, the, the trick is, what I realize, and if you come down to the financial core, you're going to see this. Mondays, it's dead. Fridays, it's dead. Tuesdays to Thursdays, you find people. So everybody's taking this crazy long weekend, and yes. that's what you're seeing. Well, there's some insider tips from Wes about uh, when to hit the food court and when not to. That's right. How is your family, if I may ask, who is in the family unit and what's happening in the Hall household these days? So we have a big family. My wife, uh, Christine, and I have been married for uh, 30 years. We just celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary in June of this year. Congratulations. Well, thank you. And we have five wonderful children. We have uh, three adults and we have uh, uh, an 18-year-old and 11-year-old. And they all live at home with, uh, with my wife and I. Uh, they're wonderful, wonderful kids. My uh, two of my boys are working for uh, my companies. Uh, one went to uh, Waterloo for environmental sciences, so he's in the environmental company that I own, Kium Environmental. And uh, I own, uh, uh, manage a private equity portfolio of assets. And my other son, the, the second one, is actually working in my uh, my holding company. In fact, 
Uh, he's uh, in uh, in St. Lucia right now at the hotel doing some uh, some audit and some work on the business. So they're very very active kids in uh, in, in the business. That's fabulous. My joke is usually you can't wait to get the kids off the payroll. You you got them off the payroll and then back on the payroll. Well, the thing about it is that when they're on the the, the payroll that you mentioned, uh, they're kind of you know sponging off you. <laughs> you know, they're just taking things, right? They're just taking things. When they're on, uh, when my son, uh, when I talked to him about coming here and and, and working with me, uh, he asked me how much, and I go, well, first of all, I've been paying your room and board for the last uh, twenty-two years, uh, so I'm gonna give you the lowest amount of money I can possibly <laughs> pay you legally. Okay. <laughs> to work for me and uh and once you prove yourself i'll consider whether or not i want to give you a, a pay raise you you were well, a sh- shrewd negotiator in uh, wes what i've heard is you classify your kids as either burners or earners so it sounds right. like you got them in the middle ground there that's right they got to be there but the bottom line is that uh, now they're contributing right now they're building their family's wealth and uh and they realize the responsibility that they have to keep doing something to advance the lifestyle that they've grown up to have. Okay. Fabulous. Fabulous. Now they have responsibility. Wes, you are a fascinating guy. With your permission, let's go all the way back and get the Wes Hall story. You were born in rural St. Thomas, Jamaica. You were raised by your grandmother in a tin shack. Please tell us about your humble beginnings and how the lessons you learned from this. You know, when, when, I, when people hear that part about the tin shack, they go, come on, you know, it's like this guy's exaggerating. Uh, the beauty about that exaggeration is that I actually have a picture of the tin shack in my office on Bay Street that I keep with me every single day. Yes. And anyone who come into my office on Bay Street to meet with me, the first thing they see when they walk into my office is a picture of the tin shack with me and my grandmother. Those are the things that they see. And I keep it... Uh, uh, right in front of me for two reasons. Reason number one is to really appreciate this country. It's, you know, because I came to Canada, uh, and uh, as a result of coming here, I was able to achieve the level of success that I've achieved today. But reason number two, which is most important to me, is for me never to forget where I came from. See, if I hide that, if I not, if I do not talk about that. Tin Shack, I would not be honoring my grandmother and the hard work that she put in to get me to where I'm at today. I have 14 brothers and sisters. My grandmother raised most of us in that Tin Shack. And the bottom line is that she never complained a day in her life. So here I am now, become this very successful person in Canada, and all of a sudden, I'm not talking about all the hard work that she put in. Now, she worked in a sugarcane plantation, a coconut plantation, banana plantation, because in farming, as you know, it has seasons. And so one season, she'll be cutting sugarcane. And think about what it's like cutting sugarcane. You're bending over in a hot Jamaican sun for 12, 15 hours a day, and you're just chopping, chopping, chopping. And every now and then, you wipe the sweat off your forehead, and you go back to, you drink some water, and you go back to chopping again. And that was what my grandmother did to get us fed and to put, you know, clothes on her back and so for me I honor her heritage by talking about that tin shack but it's literally is a tin shack that they the plantation owners would give to the plantation workers to live in while they work on the plantation and they live in those places for free namely because of the fact that they 
got paid next to nothing to work on a plantation. Now, Wes, you moved to Canada in your teens. What brought you to Canada, and, and where did you land when you came into Canada? Came here September 27th, 1985. It was a Friday. And I remember it like it was yesterday because it's almost like asking somebody, when did you leave poverty? Mm -hmm. You're going to mm -hmm. know when. Or if you won the lottery, hey, when did you win the lottery? You're going to remember those really important milestones in your life. That important milestone for me was coming to Canada. And I came to Malvern. Malvern in Toronto, in, in Scarborough, at the time was a very tough neighborhood. Tough. Still is today. And to me, when I landed at Pearson Airport and my dad, who I came, who brought me here to Canada, my dad left Jamaica when he was 25 years old. He wanted to have a better life for himself. So he left Jamaica, came to Canada. And um, later on, he, uh, he brought me here again in, in 1985. And uh, he moved to a subdivision, brand new subdivision in Scarborough. And uh, it was like five or six houses. There were going to be hundreds of houses there. But at the time, there was only five or six in the entire subdivision. So it was all mud. And, uh, and when it rains, it was just terrible. And to me, that was paradise. Yeah. You got to think about where I came from to now I, when they brought me into this house. It was under construction. The neighborhood was under construction. Their house didn't have grass. They had planks that you had to walk to, to get to the front door. I walked the planks, go to the front door, went inside the house. They brought me upstairs and said, this is the room you're going to share with your brother. And, um, and you know, showed me around. And it was just, I'm like, I've never seen anything like this before. You were in heaven. I kind of see it on television. You know, we didn't have TV when I was growing up, but I would sneak a TV with a, a rich neighbor. When I say rich, I mean that they had a little bit more than we did. <laughs> yeah. They could afford electricity. And as a result of that, they could afford television. When I was growing up with my grandmother, we didn't have uh, television. We didn't have electricity. We used an outhouse. So all those things in terms of I would go for miles to find a friend with a television. So I saw this kind of lifestyle on TV. And now, guess what? I'm living it. You're living, living the dream. The dream. Now, Wes, where'd you go to high school when you arrived? And what, was your, what do you remember about your integration into uh, high school in the Malvern area? So Lester B. Pearson High School was uh, the high school I went to. And uh, what I remembered was it wasn't too far from where we lived in Malvern. And uh, it was about a 15-minute walk to school. And uh, I, I came on Friday, and I was in school on Monday. Wow. And so as you know, in high schools in Canada, they would, you would meet with a guidance counselor. And the guidance counselor would actually pick out the... Uh, the courses that you should take, as well as the level, like, you know, whether it be advanced, uh, whether it be, um, you know, basic at the time is what they had. So basic, advanced, and um, and general. And so picked out the courses, I went to school, and then I realized, I said to my, I went home and said to my dad, hey, I, none of the kids in my class can speak English. Mm. And he said, uh, he said, what do you mean? He's like, well, Nobody can speak English. They're teaching me how to speak English. Hmm. Now, I came from an English-speaking country, and they put me in the ESL program, the English as a Second Language program. Oh, wow. Because I had this really thick Jamaican accent. Wow. This thick Jamaican accent. So when, uh, when, the, when we're meeting with the guidance counselor, she couldn't understand what I was saying because I was speaking English with a strong Jamaican accent, especially from a place like St. Thomas. 
So when I was saying, well, me, 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 me come here from 25 and I me, me, me do this and I do that and all that. And she's like, I can't speak in English. And <laughs> put me to yourself. Yeah. And, uh, so everybody was learning how to say da and the and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and here I am sitting there going, am I in the twilight zone here? I don't think I belong in this program. This is not for me. And my dad realized that and he went in and changed it. And then they go, okay, fine. We'll take him out of that program. We'll put him in the regular program. And um, and then I went back again to my dad and said, listen, I still, school in Canada is easy. And by the way, when I came here, they put me back a grade. Oh, wow. They put me back a grade. I was supposed to be in grade 10. They put me in grade nine. Okay. And, uh, and, and then my dad was like, oh, no, you know, it's just, you know, what do you mean? It's easy still. He looked at my, my, course outline and realized that everything was basic now basic was if you just show up to school every now and then mm. and you show up with a pulse you'll pass it's just that's it, it basic it's basic for a reason basic education yes we're going to teach you how to read we're going to teach you how to write and we're going to teach you basic math how to add and subtract nothing more than that and uh, so my dad's got no, went back again. And then all of a sudden, the curriculum changed to some advanced, some general. I was taking advanced English. So I came from ESL to now taking advanced English. <laughs> right? You know, I have this heavy Jamaican accent, but I understood English perfectly and I could write it perfectly. Yeah. And I could also read it perfectly, but with an accent. And yes. um, so, but what happened to me had I not have my dad because I didn't know the Canadian education system. Sure. I didn't. So if I'd come by myself, for example, I would have been going through the program to basic, uh, graduate with a basic, uh, uh, you know, diploma, but I would not be qualified to go to university or anything else for that matter. Yeah. I would just have to go into the trades. Not that there's not anything wrong with the trades, but, uh, but that would be my, my route to do just something that I could do more but they just led me into a path where that's all I could do. Um, and, uh, and that's what's been happening in, in Canada for a very long time where black kids have been streamed, and that's what they turn out that there's a name for it, into easier programs so that they could graduate from high school and then they essentially has a useless diploma. And so I was the victim of that, but it was caught early because I had a dad that was attentive. Yes. They can certainly limit you. And as you say, we all need an advocate, in this case, your dad, to step yeah. in. But that type of education is certainly limiting. You escaped that path you were on. What happened, Wes, after graduating from Lester B. Pearson High School? What did you do next? Yeah, so, you know, I had a, my dad and I kind of had a falling out uh, my senior year of high school, and I left home. So keep in mind, I came here in 1985. And uh, two years later, I'm out of the house. I'm gone. Okay. I'm on my own now. And that could have been very traumatic for me because I didn't know Canada. I didn't know anyone other than the people I went to school with. But uh, I felt that I, I was ready to just kind of be on my own. So I, I applied to uh, university and uh, I wanted to go through OSAP, but I was declined because OSAP said to complete the application, you need to provide information on your, your father's income. Mm. But my dad wasn't very cooperative at the time. At the time, my dad's right, just typical Jamaican father, where if you leave this house on your own, you're never going to come back. Mm. And you're on your own. Mm. Meaning that I'm not going to help you. 
at all. So when I went to my, my, my dad and said, listen, I want you to fill out this section of the application, he's like, no, you're on your own. Hmm. So I go, fine. So I started to do odd jobs uh, to save money up to, uh, to go to uh, uh, school. And, and then that odd job leads me to all kinds of different uh, interesting jobs that I go, man, I don't want to do these jobs. Yes. One of those jobs was a, a chicken catcher. <laughs> that I was a chicken catcher. And I call myself the chicken grim reaper because I had to put these chickens on assembly line for them to get their heads chopped off. Oh boy. And that was my job. And I'm sitting there going, man, I'm going to be doing this nine hours a day with a 30 minute lunch break and two 15 minute breaks, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. That was going to, that's going to be my job. That's my life here in Canada. Do you remember your hourly wage, Wes? My hourly rate wage was, um, I do not remember, but it can't be more than a, couple, a few dollars. Yeah. You know? It can't yeah. be more than that. It's, it, it was, it's not enough to pay my bills and my rent. Okay, let's put it that way. And I would have to have another job to supplement that job. So I was like, uh, I, uh, you know, I really got to do something else. And that's when the light bulbs went off for me to go, without an education, you have no choices in terms of what you're going to do in life. You have no choices. It's already predetermined for you. And so I realized that I have to start to take night courses and start to uh, just get into school. And as a result of that, I was able to uh, get into, I uh, got this job at this firm, Steichman Elliott in the mailroom, and they had a program whereby they would pay for you to go to night school. And I chose to become a law clerk and uh, they paid for it. I took finance uh, as well. And I took, uh, I took accounting. I took all these different courses and over the years, I've uh, just just educated myself by by doing that by taking uh, you know all kinds of different university courses, and as a result of taking those courses, it kind of give you know broaden my horizon in terms of you know what I really wanted to be. And working in that mailroom gave me an opportunity to see what Bay Street was like because I didn't know what Bay Street was. Keep in mind, a guy from Malvern, we don't know. We don't. Bay Street is almost like a different country for us. Yeah. When you're from Malvern. You ever see those kids, you know, I remember having a mentorship program with a bunch of kids from the inner city and uh, brought them down to Bay Street. It was like about 20 black kids and they're walking around and they just kept on looking up at the buildings with their mouths wide open. They're in awe in their own city. Yeah. And they've never seen these buildings before. But it's like a different world. It's a different world for them. So that's what I saw when I came to Bay Street. I saw a different world, but I also saw possibilities, like a ton of possibilities and what I could become. And that just opened my eyes. And then all of a sudden I go, wait a minute here, I can be whatever I want in this country. When I was in Scarborough, I knew I could be whatever I want, but not, you know, my dreams were not as lofty. When I saw the examples that I saw was my mom, my, my, my stepmom and my dad. My stepmom works at Ford Electronics at the time on an assembly line. And my dad works in a factory, but they had a nice house. So to me, that was success, right? Yep. I can work in a factory like my stepmom and my father, and I can raise a, a family and I can have a okay home. That was my, my definition of success. Yes. And when I came to Bay Street, I saw a different level of success. And that level of success propelled me into saying, okay, this is what, this is a part of it that I want. And so Wes, you're working in a Bay Street mailroom. You see all this potential in front of you. Here's your quote. 
When I go into a boardroom, there's generally no one that looks like me. I wanted to change that. Yeah, that was um, after years of uh, working on Bay Street and uh, being very successful on Bay Street, in all definition of the word success. I, you know, I, I often, I get to the very top because I advise companies and, um, um, and, and I'm always in the boardroom. But every time I go in the boardroom, yeah, I just, I just don't see anybody that looks like me. And, um, and, and, and in a lot of cases, I'm, I might say, it's because of the fact that, um, you know, people have not looked back and because I kind of go, like, how could nobody recognize that? How could nobody recognize the fact that when we look around the boardroom table, there are a bunch of uh, people not represented. There are no indigenous people. There are no black people. And earlier on in my career, there are no women. And everybody was fine with that. Mm-hmm. And then it's the gender diversity conversation started and people go, we should do something about that thing on the gender issue. And then changes start to happen. We start to see diversity and gender in the boardroom. But nobody has stood up and say, well, what about others? What about black folks? What about indigenous people? And, uh, and so I decided that it's time for us to start to be intentional about representing this great country that we live in, because we have very smart people that look like me that are just not given the opportunity because of the skin, the color of the skin. And when I say that, people kind of raise their eyebrows and say, Wes, come on, that's not really the case. But I go, why weren't women allowed in the boardroom before or in the C-suite before? It's because of their gender. Mm-hmm. And people admitted it. They said, okay, you're right. We have a gender problem here, so we're going to fix the gender problem. Yes. So why would we not use the same thought when it comes to having no blacks or indigenous, that it's because of their blacks or indigenous people? Yes. Because one is like saying, well, you know, I'm a, maybe I prefer to be called a misogynist versus a racist. Yeah. <laughs> And what we're saying to people is that we're calling you to neither of those things. Yeah, neither, neither are good. Those, right? We're not calling you. We're just saying that there is an absence of people that are that look like this, and we would like for you to address it. And quite frankly, to the credit of so many people, especially those who've signed the Black North Pledge, they go, yes, I get it. Yes. And we're going to do something about it. And that's why, you know, when people talk about Black North, I am proud of what we've done. I am proud of the people that have signed the pledge. There's, a, there's reports that come out of saying people are not doing what they're doing. No, no, they're, they are. They are. They are. There's people who are not, but I can tell you that majority of the people who signed the pledge are doing something. And if just those people do what they say they're going to do, we're going to see massive change in our society, and we're already seeing it. So I am proud of people, the people who put their hand up and say, yes, I am going to be intentional. I am going to do something about this. Yes. And, uh, and, and, and those people uh, are working with us to make changes. And again, we're seeing change. I was uh, downstairs today. So, uh, you know, I mentioned about having my, my tea and waiting for my tea. And uh, this black gentleman came up to me. Now, there was about 100 people in Starbucks, 100 people. And this black gentleman came up to me wearing a suit. He told me that he's working for one of the asset management firm. And he said, Mr. Hall, I would like to thank you for Black North. And I said to him, 
Why? Mm. Because if it wasn't for that organization, I wouldn't be recognized for the value that I bring to my organization. Hmm. What he said to me, the interesting thing was I said to him, that's why we have to be intentional. And I said, why? Because there's a hundred, about 150 people in this entire Starbucks in the, in the, the business district. And you and I are the only two black people here. That's the issue that we're talking about here. Both of us were wearing suits. Both of us, uh, you know, look the part, but there's not a lot of us, and, and it could be that people are just not encouraged to be a part of the Bay Street ecosystem, people like me. So when, when a company signed a Black North pledge, what they're saying publicly is that we want you as a black man, a black woman, a black kid, to be a part of the Bay Street ecosystem. When you as a black kid from Malvern go to university, you graduate, I want you, or while you're in school, I want you to be a summer student in my organization because I'm gonna welcome you. Yes. And when you finish school, I want you to come to my organization to work because I'm gonna make sure that there are no barriers there for you to advance in my company. That's what these companies have done when they signed the pledge. It's not just about just doing something because it's not, they're doing something to show the community that they're there for them and they want to create an ecosystem where the community members, black people, can, can, can thrive. You used a very important word there, Wes. Intentional. You have to take action. And this is what you did. In 2002, at the age of 34, you founded Kingsdale Advisors. As you noted at the time, I was never invited into the boardroom, so I had to create my own. I created my own company from the ground up as employee number one. What was that experience like? And how nervous were you? You're now, you got skin in the game. I do, yeah. So I was uh, talking to a fellow yesterday. He's been on Bay Street for a very long time. Uh, works for all the major companies in investment banking. And uh, he's a person of color. And we were having this big meeting, this investment meeting. And he started to share his story with me because he said, Wes, you, you encourage people like me. And, uh, and he said, you know, it's very difficult for him to get promotions because there's always a reason that people find not to give him the promotion that he deserves. And he said he's meeting with one of the CEOs of one of the large companies. Uh, and the CEO said to him when he was recommended to lead a big department. And the CEO said to him, you know, there's something about you that I can't put my finger on that I just don't think you're right for the job. Oh, boy. And he said, I've heard that so many times throughout my career. There's something about that I just can't put my finger on that's just make you not right for the job. And I said to him, yeah, it happens to all of us, unfortunately, it does. And I told, and I said, if I didn't start Kingsdale, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. Yes. Because as I was coming up the corporate ladder, I met some very great people that helped me along the way, but at a certain point, you know you hit the ceiling. You know the ceiling is there and you're gonna, you're bumping up against it. And it's going to be very difficult for you to break that ceiling. And so you either have to keep on using your head to bang on the ceiling, using your fist to bang on the ceiling, or you go, I got to figure out the way to get the ceiling away from me. Yep. Without having to beat up on it. Yep. And the way that I came up with was, let me start my own company and just go as far as I possibly can go where there's absolutely no ceiling. There's and, no, there's no limit to my capabilities as a result when I start my own company. So when you mention about skin in the game, that's what skin in the game does. Skin in the game means that you take all the liability 
but you also get all the benefits. And so when you invest in a public company, for example, which I advise, and uh, you're investing and having confidence in a management team to say they're going to do certain things. And hopefully if they do it all, the stock's going to go up and you're going to make money. But how much more would you invest if you were the CEO of that company? How much of your own money would you invest? Probably a little bit more than you would have if somebody else was the CEO of the company. Right? Because now you know the levers you're going to pull. You know how capable you are. You know what keeps you up at night and so on. And as a result, you're going to have a lot more confidence or lack of confidence in your own abilities. So why is it investors, when they look at uh, insider ownership in companies, why do they look at that? They look at how much management own of the business to show how much confidence that they have in the business and themselves. And if management has a good amount of, uh, of their, their wealth invested in the companies that they're running, investors will invest more money. Put, right? put your money where your mouth is. That's, That's been, and skin in the game is perhaps the reason that the television show Dragon's Den is so popular. People love watching this show. Wes, you are the new guy having joined Dragon's Den for the show's currently airing 16th season on CBC. Have you already filmed season number 17? Yes, sir. Uh, so um, first of all, I'm proud to be on the show. I think the show is amazing. It's amazing because everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. I grow, when I was growing up, like, oh, you know, I want to be my own boss. Everybody wants to be their own boss, but only a handful of people actually pull the trigger to do it. Yes. And when you sit there and you watch the show as a, as a young person, because my 11-year-old and his friends watches the show, my 17-year-old daughter and her friends watch the show, my 27-year-old son and my 25-year-old son and my 24-year-old daughter they watch the show and their friends watch the show. And we have 60-year-old people watch the show. I don't see, and that's the reason why it's on for 17 seasons. Because of the level of people that watch it. Why do the, all these people go, I want to see what's going on. I want to watch it. Because they want to be inspired to do something that they always want to do. And as a result, watching the show, it motivates those people to just go do it. Yes. And that thing that's holding you back, because that's what we do on the show. We motivate people to keep going. But unfortunately, there's times when there's certain people that we have to say, you know what? You shouldn't go any further. Yep. Because they're losing everything yes. in the process. And, you know, we know entrepreneurs talk, tell stories about I was, you know, living on my credit card. I was doing all these things and I was up debt, you know, up to the yin yang in debt. And then they hit you know, pay dirt and they're successful. And when do you give up? Yeah. Is the question, when do you give up? So what you see on the show is a series of questions that we typically ask people. And if they don't answer those questions in the right way, it helps them to determine maybe it's time for you to pack it in and do something else. Yes. Why? Because there's times when we start with the business idea that we're so in love with and there's nobody telling us that it's a bad idea. And we just keep going and we lose everything. When if somebody tell us the truth, somebody who's in the know tell us the truth, we can kill that idea and pivot to something new. And that new thing that we pivot to is a success that we've been waiting to achieve. Yes. And so how many of us as business people have all these ideas and ideas and then we try them? 
and then we kill them. We move on, move on, move on. There's a lot of failures in our way to get to where we are today. But yet, when you start initially, you think that that initial idea is the million dollar idea. That's the idea that's gonna make you, you know, all kinds of money and make you successful. Chances are, it's probably not. No, it, pivot is the key word, Wes. And as I know you know, it's the person, the entrepreneur that yep. is really what you're investing in, not necessarily the idea. I wanna ask how you got involved in this show. I think it would be a huge honor to be asked to be a dragon. How did you get, become a dragon? Okay, so uh, I, I, was, I was approached by CBC and they asked me if I wanted to audition for the show and I'm like, yeah, these guys are joking. Uh, you know, there's, uh, they, you know, somebody must be making, playing a prank on me. And I, it was actually, somebody reached out, out to me over the uh, social media and, uh, and I ignored it. And then all of a sudden I got an email later on from, from the producers saying, hey, we want to talk to you about Dragon's Den. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, let, let's have the conversation. And they said, hey, we think you probably would be pretty good on the show. Uh, what do you think? I'm like, well, I'm a fan of the show, but I've never seen a black person on the show. Is that what you're calling me? <laughs> like, well, oh, you no. know, we, you know, we obviously believe in diversity and, and, you know, and so on. But uh, we also believe that uh, you would make a good, uh, good dragon. And, uh, and I auditioned for the show. I auditioned with a whole bunch of people. It was yeah. during COVID. So we had to do it virtually. Okay. And I had to essentially, they, they, put all of us on a panel there's there's a number of different panels of dragons that they had i think they wanted to they put a dozen on and they wanted to choose one from all 12 that auditioned for it and uh and there was three of us on my panel and people come in and pitch us and then we have to be dragons and there's no lessons that they teach us to say here's what you say here's what you don't say they're like yeah you know here's the you, you see the show you're a fan of the show go get them and so we went through this process and then when it's all over and done with, they call me back and say, hey, you know, we would like to offer you the, uh, the slot of, uh, of a dragon on the show. And, uh, and people say, you know, it's, uh, it's because of uh, what, you know, George Floyd and it's because of all those different things. And I go, so what? <laughs> so what? You know, if, if let's say that's the reason why I wasn't there because I'm black. And, uh, and that's why, you know, let's say you, you didn't get a job because you're black and all of a sudden your company signed the Black North Pledge and you got a job. And people say, oh, it's because you're black you got this job. Well, it's because you're black that you didn't get it. Mm. So which one do you prefer to deal with? <laughs> yep. Being excluded or being included? <laughs> so I go, I'm, I'm, I prefer to be included. Now, <laughs> nobody's given anything away for free. Television, it's all about ratings. It's all about people liking you or not liking you. Yep. And no matter how nice people beat, they want to be to say, I want to have a black person on the show because it's just so nice for the show. If I'm not performing, they're going to replace me and they're going to do what works for the business. And that's it. That's it. I have to be qualified and capable. Yep. And because I've never done television before, they have to also have certain patience you know with me i can't go on the show on day one and expect to be exactly the, at the same level as arlene or michelle or any of the people that's been on the show for a long time i can't expect to be at the same level nor should cbc expect me to be at the same level they expect me to earn my way there and to work my way there but not on my first season 
and, and, and certainly not my second season as well. But as I, the show progresses, I should get better. And if I don't get better, they're going to get rid of me. Yep. Okay. But that's what happens when people get into positions in corporate Canada. The first black person to get in, for example, they're expected to perform exactly the same way as the person who's been doing it forever. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you are senior vice president in charge of uh, mergers and acquisitions in the company, for example, and you were promoted to senior vice president of mergers and acquisition, and they expected you to perform exactly the same way as the person that you replace. But that person may have worked as, at, in that position for many other organizations. They have a ton of experience doing that job. They can do it with their eyes closed. And you got promoted into the job. And the expectation is that you're going to perform exactly the same way as that person with so much more experience than you. Yeah. That's how people like me fail. Because people, they put us in impossible positions and make impossible comparisons to us and don't really give us the opportunity to make a mistake or two. Mm-hmm. And in this case, you're making your mistakes in front of everyone. But as you say, you're learning on the job. It's entertainment. And I have to tell you, Wes, you're going to enjoy this. I think you didn't know this. We're in the same club, you and I. I was not a dragon. I was a pitcher, if you can believe this. Season two. Yes. And this is you're not going to believe this, except it happened. I had a shop in Commerce Court, Bay and Wellington, the cereal bar. Your choice of 30 cereals, 10 kinds of milk, 30 kinds of toppings. Because I know when you go to your office, you don't have strawberries in your desk and milk and cornflakes. So I had a little shop. People would come by. I was there for four years. I went on in season two. And I have to tell you my behind the scenes things because I think you'll enjoy these. And then I'm going to ask for yours. So this will all resonate with you. So on the day that we shot, and back then they they shot too many segments and th- yeah. then they decide which ones were good. So when I was in the waiting room, I guess the green room, it was the lady beside me was pitching her macrame, then me with my cereal bar, and beside me was a horse, an, an actual horse, yeah. because that entrepreneur was doing horse snacks. So I had to sit in the green room for three hours with a horse beside me. <laughs> and then I want to talk about the stairs. You know this. Everyone asks when you come down the stairs as an entrepreneur, where are you coming from? Some office tower, some boardroom? As you know, there's no end to that. There's no other side to that stairs. They load you like a gun. They put you up there and say, wait till we call you and you come down. Now, this is the one you'll really enjoy. I come down to pitch and I'm so excited. Of course, I couldn't see the dragons before because you don't want to taint the process. I, I couldn't wait. As soon as we were done, I couldn't wait to go in the back room. I'm sure there was champagne and snacks and I'd be hobnobbing with. Now, at this time, it was Jim Treliving. Uh, Robert Hershevik, uh, Arlene was there. Yeah. I couldn't wait. I was so excited. So I did my pitch. It went so amazing. And the producer says, okay, you can go over there. And she points to the a door at the back. And I go, oh, this is great. That's the door to the VIP room. We're all going to be friends now. And I said, this is where I'm going to meet the dragons, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Just go that blue door, that door right at the back, that blue door. I said, this door. Yeah, that door. Just go through there. I just so excited. I press on the door. It closes behind me. There's no handle on the other side. I'm on Wellington. <laughs> I'm, now, I'm now outside the CBC building. I am persona non grata. I never heard from them again. And in those days, they didn't plan what they'd air. And week by week, they'd be editing it for what they thought was good. And I, it was either going to end up on the cutting room floor and in the, 
Second last episode. It was 10 episodes at the time. Episode 9, season 2. You can still find it on CBC's website, The Serial Bar. Those are my behind-the-scenes stories. Yes. Wes, what are your behind-the-scenes? I don't think people realize you don't just film one and go home. It's in, intense filming for you as a dragon. It is intense. Uh, but let me ask you this first, right? Uh, so you are you started the serial bar business. You pitched it on Dragons Den, and now you're doing podcasts. Yes. Right? You remember we talked about pivoting? Yes. That you probably thought at the time the serial bar is going to take me to the moon. When you watch the episode now, and it's funny because my daughter was three months old. Mm-hmm. Today, she's 15. And by the way, a little quick little side story for you. As you may know, CBC packages all this stuff and then sells it to other countries. I wouldn't call it fan mail, but I still get notes from the Arab Emirates asking <laughs> about the cereal bar, not realizing it's 15 years ago. And it's, I'm not. Listen, I've already made this too much about me, but I want to tell you you're right about pivoting. I did the cereal bar, I did rental moving boxes, I did an SO gas station. Yeah. You're correct now, I'm podcasting. Yeah. I am proof of what you talk about. It's yeah. the entrepreneur. It's the entrepreneur. And that's the beauty. The beauty is the entrepreneur. And the beauty is for us to be straight with them when we talk and give them straight advice in terms of how to pivot, when to pivot, and why you pivot. And so you can stick to something and you can bankrupt yourself and your family by sticking with something that's not working. And if you just cut your losses and move on, which is difficult to do because you've invested so much time and money into this thing, and now you're going to lose it all. Sometimes it's just the best thing for you to do because you're going to find that perfect opportunity that was just meant for you. It's almost like it was cookie cut for you to execute on it and to be successful at it. So you talk about behind the scenes. We don't have the stairs on the show anymore. So (laughs) we have these big doors and these people are behind the doors. And then the doors would open and they would walk through the door just like you see it on television. And just like your experience, that's the first time we would have met you. The dragons met you when you walked down those stairs, when you were doing the stairs. When you walked through the door, that's the first time. And you'd go, hello, dragons. My name is uh, Andrew Applebaum, and uh, I'm here to talk about my cereal bar company. And I want to give you 20% of it for a million dollars. And then we calculate what the uh, valuation is, how much your business valued. Then we go at you. We go at you. And we go at you for about between an hour and an hour and a half. Amazing. That's what people don't realize, that that five-minute clip that you see of Andrew pitching his zero bar, we grilled him for an hour and a half, and we do about nine of those pitches a day. Yeah. So think about the end of the day for the Dragons. First of all, we don't know anything about you before you start pitching us. And then we have to know everything about you by the time we're done to make you an offer. And then we have to dismiss. You get dismissed. And as you said, you go through, depending on what door they put you through. They don't put you out on Wellington anymore. They actually treat you a little bit better than that today. We we have it, you know, after 17, 16 plus seasons, we have it down to a science now. Right? So you get to go back into the back and you get to interact with different people. And then you, uh, and then you leave. And then, you know, the next picture shows up. And then you go through that same process. At the end of the day, as dragons, we're exhausted, like really exhausted. And so we find, I find anyways, that the most interesting pitch is usually the first one or the last one. Yeah. The first one kind of gets you excited that, okay, this is going to be a great day. 
and then they put a few ones that are going is this for real are these things like, in, in the middle just before lunch you know and then at the end to get you excited to go yeah they put some really exciting one that got to go on forever some of these things sometimes they go on for two hours wow uh, a pitch and uh and but it's a it's an amazing behind the scenes experience when you kind of see how the sausage is made going from a fan to actually being a dragon and people ask me even yesterday somebody who is very intelligent everybody asks me when they see me wes is that cvc's money that you're spending on the show it is not cvc's money first of all it's our money so when i say to somebody i'm going to give you a million dollars for 20 percent of your business i am actually writing a check for a million dollars and that person is now a part of my ecosystem and i have to work with them because i just gave them a million bucks to make sure that they have a successful business so i had written down rest the number one question asked, is the show real? Are you really putting your money into these deals? The answer is yes. Let me ask you the question number two that you're asked most often. Do the deals that get done on TV actually get done in real life? So I can say from my own point of view, and I only have uh, two seasons of experience uh, on the show, that uh, when I make a deal, I am very serious about closing a deal. Absolutely serious. And I would like to close 100% of my deals, uh, but it's not possible to do that. And why is that? Because just like in the real world, because once you do the show, you're in reality land. And then when the show is over, you're in the real world. And in the real world, what you do when, you, when you're buying something or investing in, in, in a business, you do due diligence on a business. So you look at the financials, you look at the projections, you look at what they tell you, all the different things. And, uh, and sometimes it just doesn't add up. And you've got to also appreciate the fact that when you're doing the show and the person is getting questions from like five different people and it's just rapid fire, uh, sometimes they can just get lost. And they may not be as, they don't want to, they don't want to be mislead you, but they just get confused sometimes because five people ask them the question 10 different ways. Yeah. And then they got to go wait and then, okay. And then they get, get really confused. And, and so in due diligence, when I, when I, when I get the deal on the show, my team are very serious about, okay, let's meet with the entrepreneur. Let's go through the numbers. And sometimes that can take a long time. And sometimes that process doesn't work in the real world. 90% of deals that you, you think you're going to do don't close hmm. in the real world. Isn't that amazing? So somebody wants to buy my company today. Uh, chances are there's a 90% shot that they may not get to close the deal. Why? Because when they go through due diligence, they find stuff that they don't like and they back away from the deal. So I think we should expect the same thing on the show whereby the, the dragons have intentions of closing all the deals, but it's still subject to due diligence and the due diligence will cause you not to proceed uh, with the deal. But so far, we're bad and pretty good average in terms of uh, checking things out and things are checked out and we put the money in the businesses. Fabulous. And Wes, I have always heard due diligence described as trust, but verify. That's it. That's it. Let's talk, if we may, about Jamaica. Do you still go back? When is the last time you were back? I'm telling you, you know, I go to Jamaica what, once a year, first of all, at least. I have great friends in Jamaica. And when I land in Montego Bay or Kingston, this sense of home comes over me. 
And as I drive, uh, and my usually um, a friend of mine would loan me a car or one of their vehicles to drive around, and I, I'm driving around, and the first thing I do is to stop at one of those jerk pits and get some jerk chicken and jerk pork. And then I stop at the patty place and get some Jamaican patties. And I'm telling you, and, and listening to that reggae music everywhere, everywhere, and the culture of the, the people and everything about Jamaica for me is just a very different culture. When you think about a place that has about 2.5 million people, and there's not a place in the world that you go to and you say you're from Jamaica and they don't know about Jamaica. Yep. Because of the, you know, Bob Marley, you Usain Blake, you name them, uh, that the, our culture just spreads right around the world. I went to the south of France and for my vacation, and I said, to, I'm on Jamaica, they said, Jamaica, Jamaica. You know, Bob Marley, you send both. They always say something about our culture, about some because it's so rich. So when you think about something, some place that's small, and it exports so much, so much beauty, and everybody knows about it. It's, you know, how could you not be proud of it and be want to be a part of it? So I go there every single year. However, when I land back in Canada, I also have the appreciation for my culture here in Canada as well. Yep. It's I great do. to have it's great to have two homes. It's great to have two homes. It's great to come home and go, I'm home. And when I go when I come home back to Canada and I lay in my bed, I'm like, wow, this is great. <laughs> the uh I know you know this and I'm wondering if you participated. This was a big year for Jamaica. Just this month, the country celebrated its sixtieth anniversary. Niagara Falls was all lit up in the flag's colors, green, black, and gold. Wes, did you participate in any of these birthday celebrations? Well, I don't celebrate uh, birthdays. Uh, I celebrate <laughs> anniversaries. So if they call it a birthday, I don't celebrate because my, my religion, I'm, I'm Jehovah's Witness, so I don't uh, celebrate birthdays, but I celebrate anniversaries. So okay. Mexico, for example, my wife and I celebrate our anniversary as a family with all the kids, and it's a big deal in the house uh, every year. So with Jamaica and the 60th, 60th anniversary, of course, it's a it's a celebration for us because we've come a long way as a as a you know small island nation, and uh, and it's something to be celebrated and to be proud of, and so every opportunity I'm given again to represent myself as a Jamaican and to talk about uh, the the heritage of Jamaica and so on, I take that opportunity because it's something beautiful and something to uh, to talk about and celebrate. Wes, you are my second favorite Jamaican Canadian. Do, do, do you want to know who's number one? And I want to find out if you he's been on this program. Mr. Carl Subban. Oh, who, Carl is amazing. I, 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 I know you know this. He's got three, three boys yeah. that went to the NHL. He's also got two fabulous daughters. But after I spoke to Mr. Subban, I was so inspired. I wanted to run through a wall. <laughs> yeah, he's amazing. But when you think about it, right, if you're going to create athletes like that, this is not just, I don't think uh, Carl would be, people would be as impressed if he had created three basketball players. But he created three athletes in one of the most difficult sports to get into, period. But it's the most difficult sport for black people to, to get because once you play, there's a lot of things you got to play through. You just you have to be good at what you do, but you have to play through a lot of 
a lot of things. It's an absolutely and, incredible story. It, it, yeah. In fact, the reason I brought him up, Wes. Yeah. I just wanted to, because he had a great story about the first time he got off the plane. Now, I realize you arrived in September, so you probably had to delay it a bit. I did want to ask you, what was your reaction the first time you saw snow? All right. So I was, I told you I was walking, my school is in walking distance about 15 minutes. And um, and I, I remember the first time I saw snow. First of all, uh, I saw it was fall that I came and the trees were so beautiful. They had these beautiful colors. I've never seen anything like it before. And then the leaves left. The leaves, leaves all fell off and I couldn't understand it. And I'm sitting there going, I said to my sister, why is it that this place, the, the leaves are all gone off the trees and now the trees are dead. And she's like, it's not dead, they're gonna come back. I'm like, no, no, there's no leaves on the trees. No leaves on the trees, this place is horrible. Because I said, and I, I literally was saying this to my sister. She hated me for it because she was like, you bash in the country, blah, blah. And I said, I left my green, green Jamaica. The leaves are green, everything. And I come to this country and there are no leaves on the trees. This is crazy. And then snow came. And when my, I remember when I was in Jamaica, my dad sent me a Viewmaster camera. And he would send me pictures of snow. And that's all I, I, I recognized of Canada was is a place where there is this thing called snow. I don't know what snow is like. Then I saw it for real. And I'm like, this is beautiful. This is quite nice. And then my dad would say to me, okay, okay, boy. Because in Jamaica, my dad would Jamaica, okay, boy, I go clean up the snow. <laughs> I, wait, I got to clean this up? This thing, go, <laughs> this thing doesn't go away by itself. It's like, no, no, you got to clean the snow up off the driveway. So I would go and it's cold outside and I had to now clean up the snow. And then the next morning, I have to clean it again. And then I have to clean it in the evening again. And I'm like, this is not good. And I'm cold. So I remember after this go on for a bit, I'm like, I can't walk to school in this cold anymore. I went to my neighbor who just worked a night shift, Tony, and I knocked on the door and I said, listen, could I get a ride to school because it's too cold outside? And the poor guy looked at me sleep in his eyes because he just went to bed after working the night shift and I woke him up just as soon as he's nodding off. And the guy said, okay, a, a Filipino gentleman. He said, okay. And he went in his car and he drove into school. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay? Now my dad said to me, that's when I know this kid has something. Because right? <laughs> nobody, he's got a lot of kahunas to do that. Yeah. But I know I couldn't ask this man to take me to school every single day. <laughs> I gotta get used to this coal business. And I remember my dad went to Canadian Tire and bought me the ugliest, biggest winter coat ever with this hood on it that goes for like a mile in front of your face, like an Eskimo. I look, look like an Eskimo. I went to school and all the kids laugh, were laughing at me because everybody was wearing designer winter coats and stuff like that. That's not, you know, it's not as <laughs> big and bulky and ugly. And here I am, this Jamaican kid with this crazy, ugly looking winter coat. My dad says... That's what you're going to wear because it's warm. And you were warm. And I, and I was warm. <laughs> and I wore that winter coat. But as soon as I realized that this is not the coat to wear to school, I wore it to school. And I ditched it when I'm in school. And, uh, and eventually got rid of it. <laughs> now, Wes, among all the things you're doing, you're a dragon. You're running a big company. You've got all these community initiatives. I don't know where you find the time. But apparently... There's a new book coming out October 4th. No bootstraps when you are barefoot. 
what is this book about and uh, what inspired you to write it? The book is really about the journey that I've taken from that tin shack in Jamaica to where I'm at today. It's not a, a roadmap to how you can be successful. It's not that. What I wanted to highlight in that book is to show that the journey that I've taken to get here, nobody should have had to take that journey. Nobody should. And it's not just about the uh, systemic discrimination and so on. Put that aside. Just from the moment I was abandoned by my mother in, that, in, in a home next to where my grandmother lived, to living in extreme poverty with my grandmother, to being physically abused by my mother for years, all the things that I went through, no human being should go through those things. And if we can build a society where we can pay attention to those things, and uh, you know, we're gonna have a better society because at the end of the day, what happens when you hear people go through hardship in their life? They repeat the cycle. They do it to others. Does that make our society better? No, it makes the society worse. So if we can identify those things, those challenges that people face, and we can do things to prevent it from happening or to help them while they're going through it, then they're not going to repeat the cycle. They're going to remember those kind people in their lives, and they're going to go, I want to emulate those people, as opposed to emulate the people who did bad things to them yes. or prevent them from getting along the path that they need to get to. So my grandmother was that center, that person that I remember that great person that did such great things for me, that always allowed when I had two, a decision to make and two paths to take, one that's great, uh, you know, helping people and so on, and the other is just being selfish and helping yourself. Because of remembering her, I go the path that help others. And so all the things that I've done philanthropically, whether it be, you know, the Black North Initiative, whether it be helping schools and young people and so on, it's my grandmother's example of going, there are good people in this world that will help you, and there are bad people in this world, unfortunately, some of those who should love you and take care of you that don't. And you should focus on those people who are trying to help you and do good to you. And hopefully, if you emulate those people, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna be like them when you grow up. And that's what I I try to do. So the book is really about you know showing that journey and inspiring people that you can overcome it and you can get to a better side of it. Well, that sounds fabulous. And as you say, it's coming out in October. Is there going to be an audio version? And are you going to yeah. read it yourself? Well, there's going to be an audio version. And uh, and I wanted to read it myself. I, I read parts of it. But I wanted to read it myself. And then I realized that I have to be in the studio for nine hours. <laughs> and then, you know, a day. And then going through this process. And I just literally don't have the time to do it. I... I <laughs> So I, you know, so there's going to be somebody with a voice that's similar to me, I hope, that, uh, that that's going to read it. And they're going to be just as soothing, I hope, in terms of telling the story. But there will be an audio version and there will be a book tour that I'm going to be doing as well in October. Fabulous. Well, Wes, you've been so generous with your time. I just want to close with some lighter things. The Dragon's Den website says you are recognized for your custom suits and fast cars. Any shout outs to your favorite designer labels or vehicles? Well, I can tell you that uh, the, the, the guy that I get uh, my, uh, my suits from is uh, Don Lee from Trend Custom Tailors. So he's, been, he's the guy who made the, the suits that you see on the show. 
and uh, you know my friends at uh, Christian Louboutin, they they provide those fancy shoes that you see me uh, you know wearing on the show. They've been they've been f- f- fabulous. Uh, you know you know making sure that I'm properly outfitted and so on. And uh, and my car, you know, I uh, I don't have any kind of deal with any car company, but I I have uh, I love uh, Ferraris and I and I love McLaren. But if I was gonna pick one of the two. I will drive the McLaren uh, over the Ferrari every single day. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, the best part, Wes, you don't have to choose. That's the best part. I don't have to choose, right? So, uh, but but that's the uh, no. That I I, listen. It's it to me. It's not about oh, like he's got a fancy car or whatever. It's it's just a nice to have thing. It's a nice to have thing. And when you had absolutely nothing, and I remember as a child, Andrew, you know. I used to make these tin cars. So there's a stick that you have, a T at the top, and shoe polish um, um, tins at e- either end, and those were the wheels. And then you used a you tie a string from one end to the next, and that's your steering wheel. And we would you, you know play competition with each other with our cars and race each other with our cars. What we're doing is really running down the street and see who was the fastest, but yeah. who was the fastest car this thing right in front of you. <laughs> and, uh, and, and when I drive one of, one of the vehicles today, I always go back to that time to say, how fun that was that? Yeah. And, and so it's not about, you know, the, the fancy car or anything like that. It's just about, you know, when you have absolutely nothing and you get to a point where you're privileged enough to just enjoy something that, you know, you, that's, that you want to enjoy, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, well, we, we, can't, we can't take it all with us. <laughs> and the hope is that we enjoy some of it and we help others to enjoy some of it as well. Well, you're certainly someone who remembers your roots. Wes, now that Dragon's Den is on TV and you're everywhere, I have to ask you, what is the weirdest place that someone has recognized you and, and maybe if any celebrity interactions you've had that would uh, stand out? So, well, it, I wouldn't say the weirdest. I was in New York uh, a few weeks ago with my wife. And she's like, nobody knows you in New York. Nobody, dude, dragon, you're Canadian dragon. Nobody knows. <laughs> nobody knows who you are. Nobody's in. And, uh, and so we went to a restaurant and I'm sitting down there and, uh, and this guy sitting next to behind us. And the dad turned around and said, is that Wes Hall? <laughs> and, and she's like, and she went, gave me the bet, and I'm like, yes, it is West Hall. Said, yes, it is. And I looked at my wife, and she just rolled her eyes. And I go, listen, man, the show is everywhere. The show is everywhere. I'm a new kid on the block, but it's nice to be able to, uh, to for people to come up and say, hey, you inspire me. And uh, uh, so, you know, today a couple of people came up to me today and just like, you know, they want to just tell me that, uh, you know, I inspire them. And that to me, that's that's worth everything, everything. And let's close on this. What is the key advice, Wes, you want to pass on to someone that wants to start their own business? I would say that uh, go to somebody you trust. In my case, when I when I was going to start Kingsdale, I went to my wife. Now, my wife is not uh, a business person, but she's intelligent. And, uh, but she's also real. And I told her, here's what I want to do. And I ran through the business plan, you know, with her. And she gave me some good advice in terms of what to tweak and, uh, and, and, and other questions I need to answer for myself before I decide that I'm going to pull the trigger on that. And as a result of those, that advice that she gave me, I was able to design a business plan that I was able to execute on. One of the things that happened was I wanted to borrow money from the bank and I couldn't get any. 
and I had to now mortgage my house to uh, our house. My wife and I own the house together. We had to mortgage the house. Now she had to be on board to do that. I couldn't do it without her. She had to be on board. And, uh, but because she was an integral part of designing my business plan and I got her input, she had confidence in what I was doing to go, yeah, let's mortgage the house. Mm-hmm. Because she knew that if we lose it, it's not because we didn't come up with a good plan. It's because of the fact that the plan just didn't work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and because she's on board, we're prepared to start over again together. So I would, and if you don't have a person like that in your life, there's always mentors that you can find that will be honest with you. And when people are being honest with you, don't view it as criticism. And, you know, going back to Dragon's Den, you know, there's people that sometimes, you know, some people can be mean. But there's people who are very honest with you, and it's not what you want to hear. But when people are being honest with you, just listen to them. Listen to them. Because that honesty will help you to design something that potentially may work for you. But if you don't take that criticism and you, or you don't take it well, chances are you're probably not going to be successful because people are going to critique you all along the way. When you start that business, you put your product out there, somebody tastes it. If it's a, uh, you know, something you eat, then they go, oh, it's horrible. What do you do then? Or if you set up a business and somebody, you know, use the, your services and they say this, this is the worst place I've ever, whatever. How do you come back from that? Because you can't take criticism. You have to be prepared to go to people that you trust, people who've been there before or others that you trust and say, what do you think? And accept their advice and make the change that you need because you're going to be better off for it. Especially when it's someone that cares about you. Especially when somebody cares about you. You ever, what? you know, you ever gotten just, it's just, you ever walk down the street and your flies down? <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Yes, that down. has happened to me. And sometimes you're among people who you think are your friends and they see your fly down and they will not tell you that your fly is down. Why is that? Because they're afraid to embarrass you. But it's embarrassing you for you walking around with your fly down. <laughs> what a great analogy. I, I, I'm with you 100%. I was behind a gentleman in line at the airport and his tag was hanging out. I actually, I can't believe I did this. I reached out and tucked in his tag. Yeah. My wife said, what are you doing? You're t- this guy's going to, what are you touching this stranger? You're a hundred percent. That's a great analogy, You're Wes. You're a friend. You're being a friend. And, <laughs> and if you can tell somebody that your fly is down, you can tell them that their business uh, needs that tweaking a little bit. That is going to be the tagline for this episode, Wes. I can tell you right now. <laughs> Where can we best follow you and your businesses and your community initiatives and watch you on Dragon's Den and get your new book? Oh, my God, Wes, there's so much going on. Where can we best follow you and get all those things? So I am very active on uh, social media, in particular Instagram. So King of Bay Street is my uh, is my handle on, uh, on Instagram. So I put out all kinds of videos and stuff that I'm up to. And uh, I still, I do LinkedIn as well, but that's more business stuff that I do there. But, but I would say Instagram is the best place. King of Bay Street, you can order the book. Uh, there's links there. You can order the book if you go to my bio on there. And just, uh, you know, just check in and see what I'm up to because I, a lot of people come up to me and say, I'm, you know, that thing you said yesterday, oh man, I was going through that and I heard and, and it changed my life. So um, we're, we have a duty when we're a public figure to encourage people, to build them. You know, I'm in the construction business, not the demolition business. So whatever I put out there is to build up, not to tear down. 
a great way to finish this episode. Wes, thank you so much for your time and wishing you continued success. Andrew, what, what a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. And to the listener, thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. On behalf of Wes Hall, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca.